you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them to Ephesians, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. It's still have, uh, I have to remember it. But Ephesians chapter 4. Have you ever wondered why there is so much pain in this world? So much hate, much anger, so much corruption. Have you ever wondered how things have gotten so badly so quickly and life seems to be going downhill like a freight train out of control? How did we get to this place? If you flip over to Genesis 3, keeping your finger in Ephesians 4, if you flip over to Genesis 3, you can get a glimpse where it all started. Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember this story. This is, uh, God has just created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and he created Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into Adam, and then created Eve from, from one of his ribs, and because it was not good for man to be alone, and, and he walked with them in the cool of the day in this beautiful garden he had placed them in, and he said to them, Everything you want, everything you need is in this garden and with me. You can have anything you want here. Just don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Genesis 3 picks up there. And I want you to remember that up until that point, Adam and Eve had everything. They walked with God every single day. They fellowshiped with him and all of their needs were met and provided for and And then Genesis 3 picks up and it says, now the serpent was more cunning. Can I tell you, we have a cunning enemy than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you should die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The cunning serpent slithered into that garden that day and introduced a lie. That's where it all started. He introduced a lie that God doesn't really mean what he says. Did God really say? That's up for debate. The idea that what God says doesn't matter. I don't have to obey God or live like he wants me to live. We can do whatever we want, Eve. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I believe that's where it started. One of my very favorite scriptures is God's pleasant path leads to pleasant places. Can I tell you one of the things that I've learned, and I've learned a lot. The Bible says, let the younger uh, women learn from the older. So younger women learn from me here because I happen to fit in that older category. I wish I didn't, but I do. But here's what I learned. That his pleasant path leads to pleasant places. My messed up path, my rebellious path, my path that wants to do it my way or the highway doesn't lead to pleasant places. And I believe that's where it all started. So I want to pick up tonight in Ephesians chapter 4 and just build on this just a little bit. I've been studying this for the past couple weeks and was hoping to get a few weeks in this passage, but uh, my, my daddy just was diagnosed with uh, cancer, as many of you know. He's a laryngectomy, has been all of, almost all of my life. And his cancer uh, now is still in the esophagus. It's the lower part of his esophagus. Uh, it's got a, um, a golf ball-sized tumor in his esophagus. He can't eat, can't swallow. He started out at 230 pounds. He's down to 170 pounds now. Um, and uh, has to go through chemotherapy, radiation, a surgery where they stretch his stomach and cut out the esophagus and attach it to the esophagus. Not going to be pretty, Um, but it's uh, not a good diagnosis. And so you can pray for my family in the weeks to come. My daddy's not afraid. He loves Jesus. He knows this world. He's just passing through to get to the next one. And 
Um, but it is, uh, we just, Stuart, you will, many of you know, has just uh, gotten over sepsis. And so we've had a trying couple months. And so just pray for us. I'm going to leave to go be with my dad at the end of the week and um, just appreciate your understanding in having to cut Bible study a little early. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 uh, we'll begin there and read through uh, chapter 5, verse 2. For those of you that might be here for the first time tonight, I'm a preacher at the core. Uh, I, I can't help but preach wherever I'm at. And uh, in order to get through this passage, I have to teach tonight. And that is not something I like to do. I, I want to preach. And, um, and so bear with me. We're just going to go through this passage slow because there's such great truths here that I don't want you to miss. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but only what is necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. One of my favorite passages. Would you just bow with me for a word of prayer before we begin? So, Father, I just thank you and I praise you for your presence here tonight. I thank you that you are Emmanuel, God who's with us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you're with us like a mighty warrior. I pray that your presence would just fall in power in this place. I pray for a supernatural encounter with you. Lord, that every man and woman in this house tonight would not leave here the same, that they would leave here changed because they've been in the presence of a holy God. Father, I'm so aware that I have nothing to give, that this has got to be all of you and none of me. And so, Lord, I ask that you just take over, that you'd wear me like a pair of pants, that you'd spend me like a coin in your pocket, that you'd fill my mouth with your words, and that I would speak only what you tell me to speak, Lord God. Have your way in this place, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Um, in context here, in the previous chapters, chapters 1 through 3, uh, Paul has just reminded us of all we've been given in Christ. Those three chapters are all doctrinal. They're all positional truths of what we have in Christ. Verse 1 begins with a therefore. A therefore, those of you who have said under my teaching, know that I always tell you that a therefore is a hinge. You always stop when you see a therefore and ask yourself, what is it there for? It's hinging what has come before it with what is going to follow it. And in this case, it's hinging the positional truths that Paul has just told us about now with practical truths. He spent the first three chapters telling us what we should believe 
And now he's going to tell us how we should behave. You see, it's not just enough to believe properly. One must put that belief into practice and behave properly. I really believe that's what's going on in the church today is we don't look that different than the unbeliever down the street. We have a lot of head knowledge, but it's not really changing our lives. And Paul is saying what you believe needs to change and impact your life. So he spent three chapters telling us the truth of what is ours and available in Christ. He said things like we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. We have forgiveness of sin and redemption in him. We're accepted in the beloved. We're co-heirs with Jesus. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. His great power, his great power is at work within us. He has made us alive in him. We were dead in trespasses, but made alive in Christ. We've been saved. <laughs> We've been saved through faith by grace and not by works so that no man can boast. We were far off from Christ, but now we've been brought near. We've been reconciled to God. We have boldness and access to God. Christ dwells in our heart through faith. We are deeply, hear me, we are deeply and unconditionally loved by him. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit and the God we serve is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. And with that truth, with all of those truths and more, he begins with a therefore. He's going to now uh, challenge us to begin applying what we've been told and what we've been taught and walking it out in our lives. And he begins with verse one that says, therefore, I urge you, I urge you, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy. This verse, I could park here all night and preach. It rocked my world for the past couple of weeks. If, if you look up that word worthy, it is literally the bringing up of the other beam of the scale. It means to balance the scale. It means having the weight of another thing as being of like value or worth as much. So picture in your mind, remember those old-fashioned scales, not the electronic ones we have now, but, but the kind that, that you put a weight on here and this, end, this goes up. Are you following me? Do you, do you have the picture in your mind? That's the picture Paul is using here with the word worthy. He's saying, this is all God has done for you over here. Now, live a life worthy and balance out the scale. You say, well, Rhea, that's a works mentality. No, that's in response to the marvelous grace that you've been given because the same grace that saved you, precious one, is now empowering you to balance the scale, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, that's what's been, what is meant by the three tenses of salvation. Some of you have never heard that. There are three tenses of salvation in scripture. I have been saved. I, I've been saved. I'm being saved and I will be saved. Those are the three tenses. The, the I have been saved is justification. I have been justified. It's just as if I have never sinned. When God looks at me, he sees the, the blood of Jesus. I've been declared, declared righteous. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what God sees when he looks at me. I am justified. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. But I am also being saved. And that's the sanctification process. People don't like to hear about that in the church anymore. We love to hear I've been saved by, 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 by grace and I'm justified. It's just as if I've never sinned. But we don't want to hear much about the sanctification process. I like Wayne Grudem's definition of sanctification. He says, it's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives sanctification. I am being sanctified. The word sanctify means set apart as holy. Uh, I'm setting myself apart to holiness. I'm being saved not just from the penalty of sin. Now I'm being saved from the power of sin. It doesn't have power in my life anymore. I'm working out my salvation like scripture tells me. And it's demonstrating itself in right living in my behavior. Sanctification is when the believer becomes more and more separated from sin and more and more dedicated to God's standard of righteousness. We start to look more like him. Can you never walk out sanctification and still go to heaven? You bet. You've been saved by grace. <laughs> 
But Paul says, I'm calling you to balance out those scales, to walk in a manner worthy. And the last one is, I will be saved. That's glorification. That happens when we get in the presence of God in heaven. We're not only saved from the penalty and the power of sin, but now we, we are saved fr from, um, from the presence of sin in our life as well. So salvation doesn't end with praying the sinner's prayer and getting saved. It's all about taking the truths of Scripture and begin applying them to our, our lives and living them out in our day-to-day -day life. It's learning to think the way he thinks and live the way he lives. And so Paul, in this passage, is going to give us some examples of what that process really looks like and how we can grow in Christlikeness. And he starts out in, in verse 17. He says, This I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. He said, stop living the way the unbeliever down the street is living. When he says Gentiles, they were Gentiles. He's writing to Gentile believers here. But, but, but what you need to understand is that word Gentile there is a reference to pagan living, to life without Christ. He said, you're living like that. You're saved. You, 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 you're, you're believers, and yet you're acting like an unbeliever. And, and he says, you must no longer live that way. In other words, they're already behaving that way. And he's issuing a call for them to stop. And notice he says, in the futility of your mind. In other words, to stop that behavior involves our minds somehow. He says, this I say, and I testify in the Lord. He says, I, I'm coming as a witness. You know, like a, a witness comes into a courtroom to testify about what they saw to give testimony to that. He said, I am coming as a witness for the Lord, saying, I, I, I'm testifying what I know is truth in the Lord, that you can no longer live the, the way the Gentiles live. Don't walk that way. He says, I testify in the Lord. He's stressing the importance of not just making a statement of belief, but allowing what they believe to make a radical lifestyle change in their manner of life. It's an urgent stressing for Paul. Wayne Barber says, Paul wants them to see that Christianity is radically different from the way the world lives. These people had to come out of the world. The temptation, hear me say this, the temptation is always to go back to where we came from. Paul says, oh no, he's given us a picture of what the Christian life is all about, being strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit of God. So now he's saying, don't go back, live differently. It's a radically different lifestyle that you and I have now as a believer. You say, well, Rhea, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Why, why do I need this warning from Paul? Because as believers, even strong, committed believers, we still have to contend with the flesh. You say, well, my, 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 I'm dead to sin. <laughs> That's your position. Your condition is not always the same, same thing. Do you understand that? So later in this passage, Paul refers to the old man. He's referring to the flesh. That is the flesh in us that we have to contend with. Many of you know uh, that I had a friend who was a mortician, and, and he, uh, he worked in, base, in the basement of his house, and he embalmed bodies in the basement of his house. The funeral home was connected to his home. And, and one day he was working on a body, and he told a story about how the arm popped up. And I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, I would not even live in that house anymore. And, but it didn't frighten him at all. He just slapped that arm back down on the table because he said, it's dead flesh, Rhea. It's dead flesh that just reared its ugly head. After they die, they say the muscles sometimes will twitch and do that. And he wasn't frightened by it. He slapped that dead flesh back down on the table. And you and I, when the flesh wants to rear its ugly head, and it will, we need to slap it back down on the table and said, you're dead. That's my position. And it's going to be my condition as well. One commentator puts it beautifully, flesh that's unredeemed, that flesh is that unredeemed part of the believer that awaits the future redemption of the time, at the time of glorification. At that glorious time, we, we will be completely free, not only of the presence of sin, but the pleasure of sin. Flesh is that moral and spiritual weakness and helplessness of human nature that still clings to redeemed souls. In short, the flesh of Christians is that entity that remains within us that stimulates evil desires to commit trespasses and sin. As long as we inhabit these mortal bodies, we will have to contend with the flesh. 
which give, gives rise to deceitful lusts or strong desires, and, and that tend to pull us back into the miry clay from which we've been transferred by God. We have to choose to say no to it. Peter recognized this in 1 Peter 2.11. He said, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He was saying, you have to make a choice to abstain from those desires, to not, to not give way to the flesh. Paul goes on to say that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. I said uh, earlier that the fact that he says no longer walk that way, that tells me they already were, that that was the way they were currently living. That word walk means to make progress. Uh, it means to make due use of one's opportunities. I'm just here to tell you tonight that our spiritual walk should be one of progress. I should look different next year than I look tonight in this place. I should look more like Jesus next year than I do right now. When you see me in 10 years, I should look more like Jesus because I I'm, I'm walking out my salvation. I'm making progress. Do you see it? It's interesting to me that you should no longer walk. That, that word walk is in the present tense. He's saying it was their habitual ongoing condition. Even though they were believers, they were walking like the unbelievers. Church, we have to get, be careful not to get lazy and fall back into behavior that is not becoming of a Christian. You say, well, Rhea, that's works. No, that's empowerment by the Holy Spirit to live a different life. Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says, you, don't ask God to, you put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to one another. Put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. We have to make the choice. In his book, A Brand New Life, Wayne Barber writes, spirituality is a pursuit, not an arrival. I love that. Spirituality is a pursuit, not an arrival. The moment I stop pursuing Christ, guess what I'm pursuing? The flesh. I'm letting the flesh dictate my life. There are fleshly lusts we have to deal with. So Paul was saying, don't go back and live life like you used to live it. Be careful. There's a tendency like a magnet which is pulling you back after the flesh. He says, no longer live that way in the futility of their mind. You're living in the futility of your mind. And he's calling them back into a place of knowledge, in a place of revelation. He's saying, I don't want you living like the Gentiles live. You're living in the futility of your mind. That's the way they live. That word futility means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. It means perverseness or depravity. It means want of vigor. Here's my favorite, pointlessness. It comes from the word meaning devoid of truth, useless, of no purpose, without value. <laughs> are you filling your mind with things that are pointless? Are you filling your mind with uselessness? Are you filling your mind with things that, that are without value, that are empty? What are you spending your time reading? What are you spending your time watching? What are you spending your time doing? That's futility. We've got to be purposeful because it all starts in the mind. For us as believers, the right knowledge and understanding of God comes from the scriptures and are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But when our minds are void of truth... We fill them with emptiness that will not live to lead to proper living. That's why in the morning, you can ask my family, you will always find me, 4.30, 5 in the morning, you will find me with this book open sitting in front of it. Not because I'm super spiritual, but because I understand that I will live out what I'm filling my mind with. Where the mind goes, the man will follow. And I'm purposeful about filling my mind, not with useless, empty, pointless things, things that are devoid of, of, of truth. I fill my mind with him. I don't want futility of mind. He said, don't let your mind be filled with empty, useless things because we are transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. Transformation comes when we begin to mind our minds and pay attention to what we're thinking on and what we're filling them with. J. Vernon McGee says the futility of mind means the empty illusion of life that actually thinks there's satisfaction in sin. 
the lie that we can actually find joy and satisfaction in living any other way but God's ways. It, the futility of mind is, is thinking I can, I can fill my mind with, with soap operas or love stories or, or I don't know, what? Uh, gambling or sex addiction or pornography. I can fill my mind with that kind of stuff and I can find life. No, that is devoid of truth. That's empty, useless, pointless. And notice what he says there. He says that, that they fill their mind with the futility of their mind. Their understanding is darkened and they are alienated from the life of Christ because of it. What we fill our mind with is where we get our life or where we get the lack thereof. If I see somebody who's depressed and full of despair, my first question to them is, what are you filling your mind with? What are you putting in your mind because the scripture says you'll be alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in you. When you are ignorant of spiritual things, you're alienated from the life, the Zoe life of God. That word life is Zoe. It is the fullness of life. It is a life that nothing can interfere with. It is God life in me. It means that it's no matter what is happening in my circumstances, nothing can stop up that life in me. And he's saying, when our mind is filled with futile things, useless, empty things, when our understanding is darkened, when we don't, when we don't have any understanding of spiritual things or, or any desire for spiritual things, we will be alienated from the life of God. This is where I get my life. Not, I've, I have a great husband. I have seven wonderful kids, but they do not give me life. Jesus gives me life. The word of God. The Bible says the entrance of your word brings life. That's where we get our life. Verse 18 says, having their understanding darkened. The spiritual lights are out. Darkness is the absence of light. Light is illumination. It's understanding. The entrance of his word brings life. When we sit in this word, uh, our understanding gets enlightened. And just like it's dangerous to walk in physical darkness, it is dangerous, dear one, to walk in spiritual darkness. These people, Paul was saying, can't even understand spiritual truths because their understanding has been darkened. They were literally in the dark when it came to spiritual matters. You see, that's what concerns me. I can preach till I'm blue in the face and I can look across the room and I can know who's with me and who's not. Who is darkened in their understanding because of the futility of their mind? Because they're not walking in, in, according to the spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. There are people that'll leave here and say, that didn't bless me at all. It's because you've hardened your heart to the word of God. Paul is saying he's writing to believers. So what concerns me is Paul is speaking to believers, telling him it's possible for believers to be darkened in their understanding and alienated, estranged from the life of God. That word alienated is fascinating. It means to be shut out from fellowship and intimacy. Oh, Jesus, help me say this. They, you see, the, the, these people have chosen to estrange themselves, to distance themselves from God, and therefore do not have life. There's no intimacy, no fellowship with him, and they wonder why they're turning to all of these other things to try to find life. Although we have this powerful life of God within us, I'm just going to tell you, it only impacts us as much as we allow it. We have to choose to walk daily in accordance to the spirit and not accordance to the flesh. He says their understanding has been darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. That word ignorance means ignorance of divine things. Ignorance of divine things. They haven't filled their mind with the things of God. They haven't filled their mind with God's word. They haven't really sought to understand God's word. And he says that happens because of the blindness of their heart. That word blindness is what I was talking to you about last week. What, when, I, when I talked about a callus, remember? Hardness of their heart. It means a dulled perception. It means the mind of one who has been blunted. This is fascinating to me. It comes from the Greek word porosis. And that word porosis comes from the word poros, which is a kind of stone. It's a hard stone. It means to petrify. But my favorite definition is to render stupid. You see, when we harden our heart to the things of God, we render ourselves stupid. The word porosis itself describes a process. It pictures something soft becoming hard, like wood becoming petrified, like a callus over a wound. 
like a fractured bone. It's, it's, it's used for a fractured bone that gets a calcium buildup. Uh, my, my, my grandson, did I tell you about my grandson? My daughter was walking down the steps with him on her hip and she slipped. She doesn't have carpeting on her steps and she slipped. She was in her socks and, and she fell on his leg and she broke his little leg. And, and so she's at the hospital and, and she was so concerned about him. And the doctor said to her, Ricky, don't worry. This is going to heal and it's going to be stronger than it would have been had it not been broken. Because what happens is when you fracture a bone, the, the calcium goes in and it builds up that bone and it makes it stronger than if it had never been hardened before, been broken before. And that's the picture here, like a callus building up on that bone, making it harder. It can also mean blindness, which is how it's translated here. And that refers to when a cataract grows and it covers the eye. Are you familiar? How, you know, my mom had cataract surgery and she didn't even realize she needed it. It just, over a period of time, it just got thicker and thicker and thicker. And then when she had the surgery, she came home and she couldn't even believe how well she could see. She didn't even need glasses anymore. But it was a process. That cataract forming was a process. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, you know, you're alienated for life because of the blindness, because you've hardened your heart. And it was a process. It didn't happen overnight. You see, the Spirit came and he convicted your heart about sin. And you were like, it wasn't really that bad. I think I'm just going to push through it. I'm going to do it anyway. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. I'm going to indulge in this thing. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nasty. I'm going to be unkind. Even though I know it doesn't please God, I'm going to do it anyway. And you harden your heart. And it's a process of that hardening over and over and over. And before you know it, you have spiritual cataracts and you can't even see clearly anymore. The word is used metaphorically of the heart and the mind and the thoughts. Those people who harden their hearts to God's commands. But the most fascinating part of this picture of blindness is that that blindness and the hardness of heart is something that's grown into. It's a process. The word heart there refers to the conscience. The conscience is really a safeguard against sin. You know, it, you feel that prick or you feel a little guilty, and it's really that safeguard, that warning signal against sin. I was driving Leslie's car the other day. She's got a hotsy totsy car. I don't. And, and her hotsy totsy car has this warning, this warning system on it that if you get too close to it, it, this chime starts going off in her car. And it's annoying. It really is. It's cool at first. <laughs> but then when every car passes you and the warning is going off, you're just like, I can't even deal with that anymore. You know, you're not even close enough to me for this to be going off. And so after a while, I was driving. I didn't even hear it anymore. Because I learned to tune it out. And what was really meant as a warning to protect me became an annoyance. And when I hardened my heart to it, I could tune it out that I didn't even hear it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying what was given to you in your conscience, the prick of the Spirit, to protect you as a warning signal to keep you safe, you got annoyed with and you learn to tune it out. And now you don't even feel it anymore. Paul is saying they were numb to conviction and no feeling of wrongdoing. They had tuned the Holy Spirit out so many times that they didn't even feel the prick anymore. They were past feeling. Look at the next verse, 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness. Barclay says the word eventually came to mean the loss of all power of sensation. It described something which had become so hard and so petrified, it had no power to feel at all. The process of sin is quite discernible. No man becomes a great, a great sinner all at once. At first, he regards sin with horror. When he sins, there has, enters into his heart remorse and regret. But if he continues to sin, there comes a time when he loses all sensation and can do the most shameful things without any feeling at all. He becomes past feeling. See, church, this is why it's so important that when we sin, we, we keep short records. <laughs> we, we, we immediately go before the Lord and repent. When people say, I don't believe in that repentance stuff, I repented when I came to Christ and I don't need to repent anymore. You rock on with your bad self. You, you just do what you feel like you need to do. But I want to keep my heart tender before the Lord. I want to keep a soft heart before the Lord. I don't want to get past feeling. 
That word past feeling means they, they cease to feel pain or grief. They become callous. It's actually where we get our word analgesic. If I'm lying, I'm dying. It's the Greek word from where we get analgesic. You know what an analgesic is. It's a pain medication that you get so that you don't feel pain anymore. It takes away the pain. That's what this word is, past feeling. What Paul is saying here is that they, they don't experience pain anymore. You see, pain serves as a vital function. It warns the body that something is wrong. Pain causes us to experience caution. Picture the tragic state of a leper who has lost the sensation of touch and pain in his hands. And because the leper cannot feel, he can burn himself, producing great da damage. How tragic to keep hurting himself because he doesn't feel pain any longer. That's what the unregenerate sinner does to himself or herself. And it is a tragic state producing damage far greater than any physical damage inflicted by the leper. Paul says, don't go back to your spiritually leprous state. That was Precept Austin. I really love that commentary. And, um, but he says they, they were past feeling and now they've given themselves over. This is fascinating. If you miss everything else I say tonight, don't miss this one. That means to give over into one's power or use. It involves either handing over a presumably guilty person for punishment by authorities, or here's what I want you to hear, or handing over of an individual to an enemy who will presumably take undue advantage of the victim. They handed themselves over to lewdness. When we are past feeling and, and we've tuned out the prick of the Holy Spirit and, and we don't have time for his word, we're darkened in our understanding and we don't spend time in his word. Instead, we fill ourselves with, with useless, uh, worthless things in our mind. What happens is we turn ourselves over to the enemy who will take undue advantage of us and make us his victim. In other words, they made a willful choice to give themselves over to sinful living, to indulge in whatever they thought best, ignoring and hardening themselves to what God said. They got greedy for lewdness. Some of your translations will say sensuality. And the word isn't just sexual, although it has a great sexual meaning. Uh, it, it, is, it is used for any kind of unbridled lust, excess, or wantonness, or outrageousness, or shamelessness. It's not just a sexual word. It refers to ex excess of any kind, or lack of restraint of any kind. Someone who's showing no restraint. I'm going to indulge in this. I want what I want, and I'm going to indulge in it. I don't care. I'm not even counting the cost. It says with greediness. They weren't just practicing it. They had a greedy desire for more. They loved it. Didn't matter who it hurt. Didn't matter what the cost. One commentator said it describes an insatiable selfishness. He says, but you, but you, you save Gentiles. He said, you have not, and that word have not is an absolute negation. It means absolutely, positively not. He says, you have not, you know better, you were taught better. You're called to present a contrast to the world around you, not blend in with it. He says, you have not learned Christ that way. Notice he says, he doesn't say you haven't learned about Christ. He says you haven't learned Christ. Those are two different things. Word Christ there, you know what it means. Christ the anointed one and his anointing. You haven't learned about the anointing that way. If you want to walk in the anointing, it's not living like the Gentiles lived. So the implication here is that some of the Ephesian believers had drifted back into their old lifestyle, and Paul was trying to get their attention. He's trying to get our attention. How many people do you know that go to church weekly, listen to sermons all, all the time, uh, and yet have uh, what they're hearing is not transforming their life anyway? It's because they didn't learn Christ. They learned about Christ, but they didn't learn Christ. And everything I do, every response I give, Every interaction I have, every conversation I have, I need to ask myself, is this, is, how, is this how I learned Christ? Is the way I'm behaving, is the way I'm reacting, is the way I'm responding, is this how I learned Christ? Is this to learn Christ, not learn about him, to learn him, to learn his behavior, to learn his character, to learn everything there is about him? This is not how I learned him. That's how I should be living him. 
verses 21 through 22, he says, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your formal conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. He said, indeed, if indeed you've heard him, I, I pray Monday night, I pray you hear him in this place. I, I pray you don't hear Rhea, that you hear him, that his word speaks to you. Can I tell you, his word speaks. In the morning when I get up, I'm aware this is a supernatural book. It is, it is not a natural book. And, and, and the Bible says that the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned and the natural man cannot understand them. And I'm so aware when I get up in the morning and I spend time in this word, I'm aware that it's a supernatural book. It's not a natural one. And if I come to it with my natural man, I'm not going to understand it because the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned and the natural man cannot understand them. And so before I open this word, I say to the Lord, Father, this is a supernatural book and I need you to grant me supernatural understanding. I need a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord, because I want to know you better. I want to know you better. And when I sit with his word, he speaks to me. It wouldn't be any clearer than if he was sitting at the table across from me and talking. He says, if you've heard him and you've been taught by him. Oh, the Bible says we don't even need a teacher because the Holy Spirit will teach us. As the truth in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct. He's, look at the word he uses there. He, he just said about Christ, and now he says that the truth is in Jesus. He uses the word Jesus when he's talking about our conduct. Because the word, the name Jesus, talks about his earthly, the time he spent on the earth walking this earth. And what he was saying is Jesus, when he walked this earth, conducted himself in a manner worthy. He lived righteousness in righteousness and holiness. And if he did it, we can too, because we have the power of God living within us. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. He says, you learn to put off. That word put off, some of your translations might say lay aside. It's a marker of disassociation. I, I love it. Figuratively, the meaning of this word is to cease doing what you're doing, what you were previously accustomed to doing. Stop doing it now. Throw it off. Lay it aside. He says, stop behaving that way. When you got saved, the old was gone, and you became a new creation, a new man. And that old is gone. We died with Christ positionally, and, and we no longer live, but now he lives within us. But hear me say this. We must daily apply experientially the truths that are ours positionally. Did you get that? We must daily apply experientially the truths that are ours positionally. So my position is I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Sin has no power in my life. I have to now apply experientially what I have positionally. The only reason sin has any power in our life is because we choose to let it have power. You say, well, Rhea, what's the big deal? I'm still going to heaven even if I don't put off my old man. My son, Tyler, is a police officer in Minneapolis. And, and I'm telling you, we were up to visit him a couple months ago, and we stopped to have a coffee with him, and he was on duty. And so he took a few minutes to have coffee with us, and we pulled out of Starbucks, and all of a sudden we see these red lights in our... Um, I don't think he turned the lights on, did he? He, he, pulled, he motioned for Dave to pull over. <laughs> he followed us into, the, into the, the gas station, and Dave got out and said, Officer, <laughs> it's our son. But I'm going to tell you, if he had flipped on the red lights, we would have listened because he has the seal of the state of Minneapolis on his car. He's got red lights. He's got a uniform with the badge, and he's got authority in that uniform. And even as our son will yield to his authority. Okay. But when he goes home tonight, he FaceTimed me with my, with my grandson, Alton, and he had a tank top and shorts on, and he was scruffy and he had gotten home from work and he took off his uniform authority and he put on his tank top. I'm not one bit intimidated by that boy. I changed his diapers. But you see, when he has the right clothing on, he has authority in my mind. 
even if he is my son. Help me, Lord. See, the Bible says that we have an old man and we have a new man. A new man, baby, there is nothing I want more than to walk in authority. I don't know about you. Maybe you're content just going to heaven. But what I read my, my word, I, I, I read that, that those who, that signs and wonders will follow those who believe. That you will lay hands on the sick and they will. Not they might, they absolutely, positively will recover. I'm telling you, I just believe it. I, if you're sick, you want me to pray for you because I believe that scripture that you lay hands on the sick and they will. Not they might, they will recover. I, I believe that we can trample on snakes and scorpions and, and absolutely nothing will harm us. I, I believe that. That the enemy can't do anything to me, that I have the power, I've been given the power to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm me. I believe that when I'm in authority. But when my garments are soiled... <laughs> When I'm in my tank top and shorts and not my uniform, the enemy is no more intimidated by my authority than I am my son in his tank top and shorts. But put that boy in his uniform and in his cop car, even his mama will pull over for him. Do you see? So you can say, I'm going to heaven, that's all that matters. You rock on with your bad self. Yay, I'm glad you're going to heaven. But I want to have heaven. I want to bring heaven to earth. I want to walk in authority. I want to walk in power. And that requires me changing my clothes. It requires if I get soiled, I go back to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry I got soiled. I just, I just receive, Lord. You're, just cleanse me and purify me from all unrighteousness. Lord, purge that thing inside of me. I just, I'm sorry, Lord. You don't have to repent if you don't want to. Whatever. But I understand being alienated from the life of Christ. I understand having a, going to the word of God and it being darkened and I don't understand any of it. I, I understand what it's like to, to have futility of thinking and my mind just thinking on junk that it shouldn't be thinking on and filling it with junk and, and then my emotions being out of control. I understand it. Can I just tell you? So you rock home with your bad self if you don't think that's important, but I'm going to change my clothing. I'm putting on my new man who's created in righteousness and holiness. That's who I am. And I'm going to walk it out. It's not just going to be my position. I'm going to make sure those scales are balanced. <laughs> and it's going to start being my condition. Am I perfect? Not till I get to heaven glorification. But I'm going to walk out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to do it. So he says, put on that new man that was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. I, I want you to see that that old man, he says, is growing corrupt according to the deceitful lust. That word grows corrupt is the same word we preached on last week to wither up, to shrivel, remember? It, it means that when I'm putting on my old man, I'm withering up, I'm shriveling. Life is just drying up within me. That's what it means. And he says, and it is grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. That word deceitful describes that which gives a false impression. It's deceitful. My lusts are deceitful. I got them. I don't know about you. Maybe you are more spiritual than I am, but I got me some lusts. I have some desires, some fleshly desires that really try to get my attention sometimes. And they're deceitful. They, they, they make me believe the payoff is going to be worth it. That if I just give in to them, the payoff is, is really worth it because they're deceitful. I can't trust them. And they'll make me wither up and shrivel away. He says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I, don't, I know I'm, I'm taking time here and I promise I'm finishing, but I, I don't want you to miss this part. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The NLT says, instead, there must be a spiritual renewal in your thoughts and attitudes. Anybody besides me need a daily spiritual renewal in my thoughts and my attitudes. I, some, I got an attitude. Ask Dave. I can have an attitude. Do not mess with me because I can have an attitude. I can. When my old man, when my tank top and shorts are on, I can have an attitude. I'm strong. Mm. And that's a deceitful lust for me because I used to think strength was, was I'm a strong woman. 
Do not mess with me. I'm strong. Now I realize that was a deceitful lust. It's a false impression. That is not a good thing. It is not a good thing. It's not anything to be proud of, Rhea, that you can have an attitude, that nobody should be messing with you. That is not a good thing. Don't be, don't be proud of that, Rhea. Be proud that you're tenderhearted. Be proud that you're compassionate, that you're full of mercy, that you're full of grace. <laughs> there has to be renewal in your thoughts and your attitudes. Paul is challenging the Ephesian believers to think, to constantly allow the Holy Spirit to renew the way we think and feel. That word renew means to, re, to renovate or to make new. I really love this definition, to refresh and revigorate a tired being. Can I tell you when I'm tired, that's when my attitude starts to show. That, that's when, when my thoughts can really go crazy. It's in the present tense. It means it needs to be an ongoing habitual renewing. You don't ever arrive. You've got to constantly be renewing the spirit of your mind. And I want you to notice that it's renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, this isn't about brain power or, or, or the mind itself. It's a renewal that reaches the depth of my mind in the spirit of my mind. The part of my mind that's under the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. You see, to be transformed, it's got to reach that area. It's got to be a Holy Spirit transformation. God transforms and renews our lives by renewing our minds. How does he do that? Through his word. You see, Satan knows. That's why Satan targets the minds of believers. That's why, that's why you have a thought and you can think on it and you can get in a, in a pit. You can, you can, that thought can, can steal your peace, your joy. Because it was put there by the enemy of your soul. That's why the Bible says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because the enemy knows that your mind is a powerful weapon. It's where you communicate with God. And if he can just drop a lie in there and you believe it and you bite, you grab, bite a hold of it, he can, he can defeat you with anything. That's what he did to Eve. Did God really say, let me just deposit a little lie in there and take you down a pit of rebellion against God? Can't just be a belief. It has to be a belief that changes the way we think and the way we live. It's a belief that transforms my emotions, reforms my attitudes and my feelings. And he says, put on that new man which was created according to righteousness and holiness. Put it on. There says that, that word put on means to be so possessed of the mind of Christ as in thought, feeling, and action to resemble him and to re reproduce the life he lived. I put him on every morning. So first thing I do is go to the word of God. Would you think about going out of the house in your skitties? Not me, baby. This is, ugh, this is, you want this covered. I'm just telling you. I don't think twice about putting on clothing before I go out in the morning. Right when I get up in the morning, I, I get dressed. Why would I spiritually not put on Christ when I wake up? Why would I not put on my new man when I wake up? Ken Hughes says, the fact is we have this new self if we are Christians. We've received the old man at birth and we were given the new man at our heavenly birth. The new man is not our work. It's God's creation and gift. Here's what I want you to hear. Our task is not to weave it, but to wear it. Paul is now commanding a daily appropriation of that which we already possess. We have to do our part in dressing ourselves with the divine wardrobe. For here, clothes really do make the man. We must set aside the rotten garments of the old man. We must formally reject sensuality and selfish pride and materialism and bitterness. We must read the word and ask God to renew our minds through the spirit. We must work out our salvation by doing those things that will develop a biblical mind. We must put on our new shining garments of light. We must put on what we already are. Do you see it? And then he fleshes it out for us in closing. Uh, in the remaining verses of this chapter, I want to read them to you in the Amplified, if you'll allow me to do that, and then we'll close. But now he's saying, this is how we put off that old man. These behaviors that you're going to see in the remainder of this chapter are behaviors that we must rid ourselves. We have to lay them aside. They might rear up, but we have to say, mm -mm, that's part of my old stinking rotten man. It's corrupt. 
I don't want that. It's rotting away every day. It's going to bring, it's going to make me wither up and shrivel. I cannot afford to wear that. And so I'm putting those behaviors, those actions off. Now listen to what they are. I want to read the entire passage to you again in the Amplified, and then we'll, we'll leave. So this I say, and solemnly affirm together with the Lord as in his presence, that you must no longer live as the unbelieving Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds, and in the foolishness and emptiness of their souls. For their moral understanding is darkened, and their reasoning is clouded, they're alienated and self-banished from, the, self-banished from the life of God with no share in it. This is because of the willful ignorance and the spiritual blindness that is deep-seated within them because of the hardness and insensitivity of their heart. And they, the ungodly, in their spiritual apathy, having become callous and unfeeling, have given themselves over as prey to unbridled sensuality eagerly craving the practice of every kind of impurity that their desires demand. But you did not learn Christ in this way. In fact, you've really heard him and have been taught by him just as truth is in Jesus revealed in his life and personified in him, that regarding to, regarding to your previous way of life, you put off your old self, completely discard your formal nature, which is being corrupted through deceitful desires, And be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh, untarnished mental and spiritual attitude. And put on the new self, the regenerated and renewed nature, created in God's image, God-like, in the righteousness and holiness of the truth, living in a way that expresses God, your gratitude for your salvation. Now, this is how we put it off. Rejecting all falsehood, whether lying, defrauding, telling half-truths, Spreading rumors. Speak truth to each one to his neighbor, for we are all parts of one another, and we are all parts of the body of Christ. Be angry at sin, at immoral immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior. Yet, do not sin. Do not let your anger cause you shame, nor allow it to last until the sun goes down. And do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin by holding a grudge or nurturing anger, or harboring resentment, or cultivating bitterness. The thief who has become a believer must no longer steal, but instead he must work hard at making an honest living, producing that which is good with his hands, so he will have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome, foul, profane, worthless, vulgar words ever come out of your mouth but only such speech as is good for building up others according to the need and on the occasion so that it'll be a blessing to those who hear you speak. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but seek to please him by whom you were sealed and marked, branded as God's own for the day of redemption, the final deliverance from the consequence of sin. Let all bitterness, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, perpetual animosity, resentment, strife, fault-finding, and slander be put away from you, along with every form of malice, all spitefulness, verbal abuse. Be kind and helpful to one another, tender-hearted, compassionate, understanding, forgiving one another readily and freely, just as God in Christ forgave you. That's what putting off the old man looks like. Oswald Chambers, in closing, writes this, and I just wanted to close with it. To refuse to be continuously converted puts a stumbling block in the growth of our spiritual life. There are areas of our self-will in our lives where our pride pours contempt on the throne of God and says, I won't submit. We defy our independence and self-will and call them by the wrong name. What God sees as a stubborn weakness, we call strength. There are whole areas of our lives that have not yet been brought into submission. And this can only be done by this continuous conversion. Slowly but surely, we can claim the whole territory for the Spirit of God. I don't know about you. Maybe this is just too much for you, and you're like, I really don't like being convicted, Rhea. 
I'm just telling you, it is the conviction of the Spirit that brings change in our life. It, never do I ever want you to, to leave here feeling condemned. I'm okay with you leaving feeling convicted because conviction will lead to change. You see, that's what I really just don't have. A, I, have I, I, I have a hard time with feel-good messages that you might leave saying, oh, I really like that church and I feel good about myself today, but they don't bring any change. I want to change. I want to look more like him. I, I want to act more like him. I want to reflect his glory everywhere I go. I'm telling you, I was talking to my dad and, and I said, Daddy, you know, you don't need to be afraid because when I come home to Pennsylvania, I drive through Illinois and Indiana and Ohio and then I get to the Pennsylvania state line and it says, welcome to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, I'm almost home. And then I get to my little small rural country town and I start seeing familiar signs and my heart starts beating fast because I'm like, I am almost home. I said, Daddy, you're almost home. You're almost home. You were never meant to live in this world. This was Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. We were created for the next one, Daddy. You're almost home. I watched Stuart. I'm telling you, he was very, very, very sick. I didn't know if he was going to make it through it. And, and I was just so aware. At the same time, our friend Kelly died of a brain tumor, and we were sitting with her in hospice the day she died. And, and she had just called me on the phone, what, two days prior, talking to me like I'm talking to you right now. For many years, I had a sign on my refrigerator that said, never forget the brevity of life, the certainty of death, or the length of eternity. Dear one, I, I'm going to preach hard because I am so aware of the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. I am so aware that this world is not our home. We're just passing through to get home. And that one is forever. It's eternity where we, you know, people say, well, eternal life, it's, it's when you get to heaven. No, you're going to live eternally wherever you go. You're going to live eternally one place or the other, hell or heaven. That's the reality. We don't preach that reality, but that's the reality. So how we live matters. How we live matters. You're saved by grace. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are going to heaven. You don't need to work for that. You don't need to earn that. Well, I'm going to tell you what. I am so grateful that I'm saved by grace, that I want to live in a manner that's pleasing to him to demonstrate my thankfulness. Life is short, guys. How we live matters. Even if I die tomorrow and I find out none of this was true, I'd still live this way because the hatred I see in this world, the hatred, I'm telling you, I like live. I, I, I love to go to restaurants. Leslie will tell you this. And it's like, it's like this almost a game for me to see how happy I can make the waitress to, because they're like, what is wrong with her? Because people aren't kind anymore. People aren't loving anymore. And, and, and my whole purpose is, if you're going to step into my life, I want to make sure you feel loved. I'm going to make sure you feel special. I'm going to make sure you feel like you matter because guess what you do? And if I am full of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment and jealousy and all of those old man virtues, <laughs> you're never going to see that. And you'll never get to see a glimpse of the Jesus that I so desperately want you to know. And so how we live matters, not to get to heaven, but so that other people can get heaven in them. I want people to be like, like the, the disciples. They were unschooled, ordinary men. But you see, they couldn't deny that they had been with Jesus. I don't care if people look at me and say, she is bizarre. She is a strong cup of coffee. I am. <laughs> she is unschooled, ordinary. She can't even speak proper English. All I care about is that you say, that girl has been with Jesus. She has been with Jesus. That's all I can. I want my daughter to say, my mama has been with Jesus. She's been with Jesus. We see Jesus in her. That's all that matters to me. Hate. I don't need to join a protest 
I need to protest with my life. I need every encounter I have with somebody to be so, so, I need to protest for the Lord so that you encounter him with every, you just see the love oozing from my life. You see the love. I don't need to hold a sign to tell you I love people. My life should tell you I love people. My life should preach it. I don't need a sign to convince you. I need to preach it with my everyday living, day-to-day living, to the waitress, to the gas station attendant, to to the school principal, to, to the grocery store clerk. I need to preach it. And that's what happens when you put on the new man because it preaches. Francis of Assisi preached life, preach Christ always when necessary, use words. Your life should preach it enough. Father, bless these people. Bless them. Thank you that they put up with a strong cup of coffee every week. Thank you, Lord, that they even put themselves under that. And so, Father, I pray your blessing to be upon them. I pray for increase. I pray, Lord God, for for supernatural understanding. I pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that every person in this room might know you better. We love you, Lord, and we give you such glory, such honor and praise for you are so deserving of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for coming.